Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. God's teaching is His will, and His will is the content of His teaching. The speaking and the carrying out of this will has the power to correct our steps, imprinting itself on our heart and replacing human thoughts with, you guessed it, God's will. For several chapters in Matthew, Jesus himself has repeated his Father's will that the disciples share the same with those in need. The harvest is plentiful, he laments, but the workers are few. One can only imagine his frustration when Jesus receives the complaint, I brought a sick person to your disciples, and they could not cure him. All that was asked of the disciples was to do what Jesus repeatedly taught them to say, even just a tiny bit. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 14 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 328 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When you want someone to understand something, you keep repeating it. In the case of Matthew, it seems like the disciples, especially our friend Peter, are insistent upon the triumph and victory and power of Jesus. Last week, we explained how this plays out in the tension associated with the title Ben-Adam. We quickly discover as we move forward in Matthew that Peter still has not learned his lesson about what Jesus is teaching and what it means to say that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom and the king are already concepts we have in our mind, and we impose those concepts on the text. God himself had to declare Jesus to be his son so that Peter would understand. But Peter still didn't understand because Peter thought it was really cool that Jesus was hanging out with the big guys, Moses and Elijah. Every time Peter got excited, Jesus had to remind him that as the son of God, not as just simply the Son of Man, but as the Son of God. He says both. He says the Son of Man after Peter says Son of God. He's going to have to suffer. Peter has faith in the King, in the Messiah, in the way that he has faith, in his own category. Both the scribe and Peter have to give up their own conception of what the Messiah is if they're going to see Jesus for who he is. When there is this question of faith, there's this faith that people have that, like, God is this great, wonderful, all-encompassing being who can do anything. You just have to ask. 
And there is this understanding of faith that God is a will, that God gives us a duty, hands us a task. We are his slaves. We are the ones who serve him to carry out his will, not the other way around. God is not there to carry out our will. We are here to carry out God's will. And for us, God is that will. This passage that we're coming up against now comes in the context of these big discussions about Jesus having to correct Peter and correct the disciples again and again by reminding them of his suffering. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. When we talk about fire and water, we're talking about the elemental spirits of the earth. We're talking about the elements, as they were perceived in the classical world, that were associated with pagan deities. These are, from their perspective, forces in the world. And people worshipped these forces. They were at the mercy of these forces. When Jesus confronts someone who is controlled in some way by an evil spirit or an illness or anything affecting the mind, all forms of illness, whether it's what you use to hear the teaching, your ability to see the world the way the teaching wants you to see the world, or the corruption or perversion of your heart by false teaching. There is a man who is in trouble because the ones entrusted with the duty to teach have been doing something other than what they were charged to do. When this guy comes to Jesus and says, I need you to do something, Jesus isn't about magic tricks. Jesus is about a teaching. Jesus is about sowing seed. One of the things that's tough nowadays is someone says, oh, I'm feeling bad. I needed this. And, that. and you say, well, you need to go and do things differently. And they're like, but wait, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You aren't understanding how I'm feeling. It's like, no, I do understand how you're feeling. If you're sinning, go and serve at a soup kitchen. And if you're still sinning, serve at another soup kitchen. And if you serve at enough soup kitchens, there won't be time left in the day for you to sin because you'll come home and you'll collapse and you'll fall asleep and then there's no more problems, okay? You need to act differently. So if you think Jesus is about distributing magic and he's plugged into the magic juice of God that he can you know, sprinkle on you and make you better, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus teaches. And if his disciples are truly his disciples, they're not going to be just trying to plug into the magic juice they're going to be distributing the teaching because once the people follow the teaching, then they're going to notice that these powers, these demons under which they are controlled are going away. Do the correct action and I'll correct what's going on in your head. This is pure wisdom. This is how apprenticeship works. This is how people have parented their children from the beginning of time by assigning specific tasks. And when it comes to wisdom, the tasks that God assigns always pertain to the dismantling of ego on the one hand and the correct action towards the neighbor on the other. We're dealing with behavior. 
that's an important point to make when you're talking about a disease of the mind in Scripture. Jesus is not trying to correct what this person thinks. He is showing them this is how you are expected to act. And if you act this way, it will change what is written on your heart. And as we always say, the heart is the seat of reason. We know that what comes from the heart is corrupting. What's written on the heart comes from the commandment, not just the memorization of the commandment, but the doing of the commandment, which does the inscription back onto the human heart. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Again, I want to point out quickly that the word for unbelieving is apistos, which means untrusting. This has to be repeated again and again and again because the way we use the word believe is controlled by Western philosophy and David Hume, who wants us to take a leap of faith that Jesus can work magic. This is completely fallacious. It has nothing to do with the biblical tradition. The question is trust. Do you trust in the Son of Man as your King and Lord? Do you trust someone who's going to be executed and shamed publicly before the eyes of his enemies and of all human beings? Do you trust that this one is going to be victorious? Do you trust that his instruction has the power to correct what is written on the heart by correcting behavior? Do you understand that the power, the currency of Jesus Christ, his power is a different power than the one Caesar executes? Because Jesus, in human terms, is powerless. But how is the Father's power manifest through Jesus? It's through this instruction. So the question, and also the source of the frustration of Jesus, who's been repeating himself, is what the heck were Peter and the other disciples doing if they couldn't help this guy? Well, we know what they weren't doing. They weren't teaching what Jesus instructed them to teach. And so the problem remains. The one who follows the will of God will not avoid suffering, will not avoid death, but will use their suffering and use their death for the sake of others. God is a will, but so is Caesar. Caesar is a will. I mean, how many people in the Roman Empire actually met Caesar or saw Caesar? They didn't. They maybe saw a bust during a parade and that was it, but they knew his will and they had to do it. That was called a law. Pharaoh has a will, and not everybody saw Pharaoh. Baal has a will, and no one saw Baal except in an effigy. A king according to Baal, a king according to Pharaoh, a king according to Caesar is always the same. They are always looking out for their own ego, their own stability, and their own power to remain, and this is why you follow their will, is so that they remain in power and so that they remain strong. Jesus has been trying to teach the people that God is different in this way. He is still a will like them. But when you follow that will, it doesn't necessarily keep you safe. If you follow Caesar's will, you don't go to prison. You follow Baal's will and your crops grow. 
you save your own skin. But the anointed one, the one anointed by the king, the king, God, is going to suffer. When the disciples are trying to heal this son of this man, does anyone happen to bring up that following the will of God reorders your brain in the way that we were talking about a minute ago, Father, such that you think sanely. You're no longer selfish about yourself and taking care of yourself and even at the expense of your brother. This is where the perversion happens. This is where you step off of the path of God. He can only teach them the same thing so many times before he dies. So the faster they can get it and understand the absolutely unique will of this God who has no rival, who does not need anyone to keep him in power, who will not lose power because he is the one who created the heavens and the earth by himself. It is by following his will to love the needy neighbor. That is the only way for you to reorder your mind, not ask for favors and putting a quarter into the God gumball machine and getting something out that you really want to have. You need to follow his will, not because of the gumball that you get, but because of the ability to offer your own life and to sacrifice yourself for your needy neighbor. Peter is trying to wield the power of Jesus the way Luke Skywalker wields a lightsaber because that's his understanding. That's what he's looking for. He wants to know when he gets his lightsaber too, like a kid who joined the Boy Scouts and wants to wear his new badge. But that is not the power we are talking about. That is the gap. And that is why Jesus is really frustrated. Once you hear the text as a narrative, you can feel the buildup to Jesus's frustration. If you just hear bits and pieces in the lectionary, or you use the Bible as a quote book instead of a novel, I mean, it's not a novel, it's a different genre, but you understand my point. If you just pick and choose, you're going to wonder, why is Jesus so upset about this? He's not upset about this. He's upset about the last 20 times he's had to deal with this in the book. So by this point in Matthew, if you're a serious listener, and you're paying attention to what the text is saying, you realize the folly of the disciples. It's scandalous to me that people don't understand that the disciples behave so poorly. When the whole Dan Brown controversy happened, I wasn't upset about his silly theory in his book. I was upset about the fact that it was scandalous that he was trying to paint the disciples as bad guys. This is not shocking. I mean, his theory was stupid, but that's beside the point. The disciples are the antagonists in the story. And the fact that so many Christians don't know this is embarrassing. God is mocked among the nations because Christians don't know what scripture says. You can't miss the folly of the disciples. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith 
the size of a mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The trust, the tiniest bit of trust, the mustard seed is just so small. The least amount of trust in the smallest morsel of God's instruction has the power to bring Caesar to his knees, let alone correct the perverted thought of this poor person who's ill in their mind because no one has planted even a mustard seed. Come on, guys. If you just tried to repeat 1% of what I've been saying to you, this guy would have been fine. I like this word that we use in English. It's rebuke, but I think there's a nuance to it in Greek. Epitimisen. When it's used in the New Testament, it always comes with a commandment. This is the same verb that Jesus says to the winds when he's out on the sea, that they should stop. This is the same word that he uses when he's saying, do not let me be known. This is the same thing that Peter uses with Jesus when he doesn't like what Jesus says about his own suffering. It's always a word that comes with a charge, with a commandment. Time and time again in the New Testament, Jesus is casting out these demons simply by commanding them. He expresses the will of his Father to those demons. Now, people say, ooh, ah, even the demons recognize the power of Jesus. The problem is the disciples don't recognize the will of the Father that comes from Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have this oligopistia. Oligo, we know this from like oligarchy, meaning small or little, and pistia, which is belief or trust. So oligopistia, you have such a tiny bit of faith. You don't actually believe that this is the will of the Father. When you hear a trumpet blast and someone proclaims something from Caesar, you stop whatever you're doing and you do exactly what Caesar tells you to do. But when the will of the Father becomes manifest, uh, you don't bother to look up, you don't listen that well, and you forget it five minutes later, okay? This is what a lack of faith means. When we say, let us attend when it's time to listen to the Holy Gospel, it means pay attention more than you pay attention to the stupid stories you read on social media, for heaven's sake. You know, people are more interested in the culture wars and fighting this side versus that side than they are to doing the will of the Father because they want one side to win in the way that Caesar is victorious in battle. Instead of being a slave to the Father in the same way that Jesus does whatever the Father wills, their lack of faith, their little tiny faith, just shows that they don't care about what Jesus says. There's a connection here between the oligopistia and the mountain and the previous passage where Peter wanted to build a shrine. You want to control God. You want people to come through you to have access to God. But the access to God comes through his instruction, which the disciples didn't share with this person who was in need. Jesus came down from the mountain to bring the teaching to the needy, and then they failed in their duty to bring that teaching. 
and he became frustrated. And now he's talking about casting it out by prayer and fasting. Now, very often this verse, which doesn't occur in early manuscripts, very often it's used as a justification for going to church, as a justification for the temple and its cultic practices. But that's not the teaching. The teaching here is about the movement of the mountain. The mountain moves out into Galilee at the end of Matthew through this trust, this oligopistia, this little bit of trust in what Jesus is saying. It has the power to take the mountain of Sinai and bring it to the Gentiles so that no one is sick anymore. And the reference to prayer and fasting is anti-temple because you can pray and fast anywhere. You don't need Jerusalem to pray and to fast. This is not going to be cast out by your lightsaber, Peter. It's not going to be cast out by your tourist attraction up on the mountain. It can only be cast out by this little bit of trust, which can move the mountain of the instruction of the Torah, the mountain of Exodus, out into the nations where you can pray and fast without a temple. God is not going to be impressed because in spite of COVID, you decided to show up in your church building. This is not impressive to God. You can pray and fast anywhere. I had a discussion with someone recently about the pandemic where he was like, oh, we don't have to worry so much. We have faith in God, don't we? We can open up the churches. We have faith in God, don't we? Don't you have faith? Because, you know, Jesus said that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. And I said to him, don't you have trust in God? Don't you have faith in God? The one who sent Paul, who taught us that if my eating meat offends my brother, I will never eat meat again. Don't you believe in God? God is a will who instructs us to take care of the needy neighbor, not to go and flaunt God's power before the nations as if he's the uber Caesar that he's going to go and defeat all the demons of COVID. This is not how it works. If you have faith in God, you don't flaunt science and go to your services at your churches against orders because you want to show that you have faith bigger than a mustard seed. Now you're talking like Peter. If you actually have faith in God, then you have faith in his will. And his will is that you take care of the needy neighbor, even to your own detriment, even, God forbid, to your own inconvenience. And let's remind everyone, when we say will of God, please do not go into wishy thinking about you exploring your conscience to discover God's will. It doesn't work that way. You need look no further than the text of the New Testament itself to correct and clarify what is meant by the statement will of God, because Paul likens it to a human will in Galatians, meaning we're talking about something written down that is immutable and can't be broken. This is the mustard seed. Your trust in that will has to be such that you know and are committed to the truth that simply by teaching people to read the text, 
simply by announcing it to them, simply by opening up the scroll and reciting it, you can heal this man. He's not asking Peter to explain God's will. He's asking him to sow it. That's the challenge. And they fail miserably. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. He's now going beyond simply naming the leaders of the synagogue. He is now saying, generally speaking, that he will be delivered into the hands of men because now the teaching is moving out among the nations. Now it's clear everyone's going to turn on Jesus because Rome is going to be as offended by the gospel as Jerusalem. So there's a progression. But more importantly, in verse 23, the grief of the disciples at hearing the gospel proclamation is problematic. It's reminiscent of the call in Mark that those walking by and wagging their heads wanted Jesus to come down from the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea wanted to bring Jesus down from the cross. Because who wants to look at Jesus on the cross? Not only is it embarrassing, it's depressing. Who wants to look at their leader and their teacher and their Messiah publicly portrayed as crucified? But I'm torn, Rich, because at the same time, the fact that they're grieved means they're starting to realize that this isn't good news in human terms. Exactly. They're starting to get it. I mean, Peter's first reaction was to correct Jesus and to try to teach him something better. Here, the disciples start to feel sad. This is good news because it's breaking down in clear ways what they think the Messiah is supposed to be. This is the first part of the grieving. They're not grieving for Jesus. They're grieving for what they thought power was, what they thought they were going to get out of this whole deal. Now that they are internalizing what this teaching is, there may be something good. So we'll only know if the seed took root if we are able to see their actions follow this teaching. They don't want it to happen, but sometimes not wanting it to happen is the first step to actually embracing the thing that must be done. I have a few standard jokes that I use as a priest. My poor parishioners are probably tired of my jokes. But at baptisms, when the baby starts crying, <laughs> I always tell folks it's a good sign. <laughs> it means they're getting the point. It's not good news. As Father Paul likes to say, it's just news. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.